It's really good to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, just really quickly before I jump in, uh, <clears throat> I want to personally invite you to this intro to gospel community that's getting started, okay? We, we kind of launch these intro communities like probably every six months or so. Uh, so this is a really, really cool, if you're, if you're new or you're kind of investigating things, this is a great time to be new. And the cool thing is, is that everybody else is new. <laughs> we are a church plant. We've been going for about a year and a half or so. And uh, I just want to personally invite you out, sign up for this Intro to Gospel community. I promise you, it's going to be worth your time. If, if, you're, if you have any desire to grow in your understanding of God's love for you and grow in your understanding of how he's created you and wired you to be like a conduit of his love to the people around you, Intro to Gospel Community is like a great, great option for you. Uh, my wife and I, Ebony, we, we do it out of our home. We'd love to have you over in our home for a season of life to grow and learn and uh, and journey together. So I want to put that out there. You can sign up on the app. I would do it today. There's a handful of spots left, but I do think we'll probably max out. So I just want to put that in front of you. If you haven't signed up yet, do that, okay? All that being said, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We are going to be in John chapter 12 today. We are jumping back into our series entitled Jesus Is. Um, <clears throat> and frankly, Jesus is a lot of things. I think if you want to get stuck in life, just kind of try to pigeonhole your understanding of who Jesus is. He's so complex. He's so glorious. He's so wonderful. There's so, there, we can spend an entire lifetime investigating Jesus and not even scratch the surface of his glory, of his goodness, of his unfathomable holiness, okay? This is a series where we're going through the Gospel of John, the, the kind of eyewitness account written by the Apostle John, Jesus' best friend, and our goal in this series has been to learn as much about Jesus Jesus as we possibly can. Because a lot of people have come kind of preconceived notions about Jesus. Uh, culture kind of says some things about Jesus. Well, maybe we've heard some things about Jesus. Many of you guys, I know many of you have, have kind of grown up in the church, and Jesus has been presented in, 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 in many different ways, some great, some not so great. As we're getting going and getting established as a church, we think it's really important. If we're going to be a church that's centered on Jesus, we need to know as much about Jesus as possible. It's kind of a great starting point. So we're continuing on in this series. So yeah, you, hopefully you're at John chapter 12 or you're flipping there by now. But before we jump into the scriptures, I want to kind of do like a, a hokey, cliche photo slideshow for you really quickly, okay? Um, so guys, go ahead and put the first photo up there for me if you would. Okay, so check out this photo and see if you recognize anybody in this photo. Um, this is October 6th, 2002. Uh, this is the day me, my mom, my dad, and my brother, all of us got baptized. So really special day. Uh, you could see I had muscles back then, which was kind of cool. Uh, my, look how small my brother is. That was when I was bigger than him. It was a pretty special day for us as a family. We got to all be baptized in a public declaration of us wanting to follow Jesus and him being the Lord and the king of our life. So you guys throw up the next picture for me if you would. Uh, this is May 24th, 2009. This is the day I married Ebony Logue. Uh, incredible day. Like, as you can tell, she looks gorgeous. Look how big that tuxedo is. It was like two sizes too big. I was so, such a mess in this season of life, guys. Like, I didn't even get a haircut. I just like threw gel in my hair and then it got all flat. And it was like, check out the soul patch. Like, it. I was a mess, very incompatible, like beauty versus not so much beauty here, but this was a really special day. Like I can still picture uh, Phil walking Ebony down the aisle and like, you know, the, the, the getting choked up and seeing like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is my bride, man. And then got to make vows to her and she made vows to me. It was a really, really special day. Uh, Shortly thereafter, I don't have a picture of this, but there was, I had this profound experience in my life. So I was, I was, I was, at this time I was a Christian, I was a pastor at this time, and 
I used to go into this specific area. It was kind of like my, my prayer area, if you will. And I remember I was kind of struggling in life, and I remember like crying out to God. I remember the date. The date was October 26, 2010, and I had this like profound encounter with God. Like, not just like, oh, man, like, I feel his presence, and I know that he loves me, and I'm like, the Spirit's filling me with faith and belief in the truths of who God is and what he's done. Like, that, yes, but I had this, like, this encounter. It was wild. And I'll spare you the details, but God kind of, like, spoke to me, and like I said, a very powerful way. And what he did was he kind of highlighted and invited me into a calling that I wasn't anticipating in my life kind of providing more direction, more specificity, that's a word, specificity in regards to my calling and my purpose and my identity as his beloved son. It was this like turning point in my life. It was, it was, it was profound for me. It was amazing. Guys, throw up the next picture for me if you would. Okay, this uh, purple looking child, this is Amelia Logue. This is my first daughter. This is February 15th, 2012. This is the day I became a dad. This is the day that Ebony became a mom. Like, she, not too much detail, she was in labor for 32 hours. Uh, We were up for like two and a half, three days straight. It was this like profoundly dramatic experience. Uh, And at the end of it was this incredible gift from the Lord, my daughter Amelia. Like, those of you guys that are parents, it changes everything. You think, you're like, oh man, like, I think I can kind of process what it's going to be like to have love for your child and to reorient your life around serving them and being their slave. <laughs> uh, but then it happens to you and you're like, whoa, like, it's just profoundly life-altering in some incredible ways and then also some really challenging ways, but all in all, beautiful, right? Uh, you guys can throw up the next one. This is, I don't know if you can see it, but that's Millie there, tiny in the... In the so this is, yeah, July 3rd, 2012. Okay, so this is like months after Amelia was born. This is when we moved from here from the valley down to San Diego to plant what would be the first restored church. Profoundly life-altering season. Like we went from being in the suburbs to being in the city and living in a tiny apartment, unemployed, living as a missionary, to like see this church get started. And it was like, we'd never been more on paper, like vulnerable, uh, not just financially, but like on, on many different levels. But I can honestly say it was one of the most, one of the sweetest seasons of our entire life. Fully like depending on God every day, like how are we gonna make this? God clearly gives us an assignment. And it's a matter of obedience versus not, and we do it. And we're like, all right, Lord, like you gave us a ton of faith to do this. Now, like, you got to come through. You got to take care of us. And it was this season of learning more and more about the faithfulness of God and how amazingly powerful he is to, like, like invade people's lives, ours included. It was an amazing season. You guys can throw up the next picture for me. This is July 17th, 2014. That is Vivian Logue. That is my youngest daughter. That was the day that we, we became a family of four. Okay, much quicker birth, which was wonderful. Um, but again, I remember at this point, I, I, this kind of like feeling of, I'm already a dad, but like, I just felt way more like <laughs> domesticated, like, <laughs> like solidified, like, <clears throat> man, like God's given me responsibility here. These girls are a gift. Like he, he's in, he's in charge. He's like, uh, what's the word? He's, he's trusted Uh, me with caring for them and raising them and discipling them and teaching them about who he is and about their identity and about their worth. And I just remember feeling like so grateful that I get to be the one that gets to parent these precious girls. One more photo for you. This is May 6th, 2018. Uh, Many of you were there. This was when the church launched. Like we kind of went public our first Sunday morning gathering after planting a couple churches down in San Diego with people we love so much and then God calling us back home, giving us a new fresh assignment to give our lives to see a church get planted here. And like, it's so fun for me to just look around the room and go like, man, just so much, so many of you sacrificed 
um, and served and have like reoriented your, your lives around loving Jesus in ever-increasing ways and loving and serving his church and, frankly, this, this valley. Why do I show you these, these photos? I'm not trying to draw attention to myself this morning. I really want us to draw attention to Jesus. But why do I show you all these? Because these are some of the defining moments in my life. And today, in John chapter 12, where we're going, this is a defining moment in the life of Jesus. How do we know it's a defining moment? He's done so many amazing things, like all of the Gospels seem to be defining moments in Jesus' life. We know that this specifically, what we're going to go through today, is a defining moment in Jesus' life because it's one of the few events that shows up in all four Gospel accounts. There's only a handful of these. And this is one of them. You guys know the gospel accounts, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These, these, these eyewitness accounts of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, his ministry, today is one of the defining moments in Jesus' life, okay? It is affectionately known as Palm Sunday. So those of you guys that are church, you'll know where I'm going. But it's Palm Sunday, or also it's also known as the triumphal entry, right? <clears throat> and one of the interesting things about what we're gonna go through is this actually marks the final week of Jesus' life. It's a defining moment. So that being said, before we jump into John chapter 12, I'm going to pray for us. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father, we just like look to you now. I, I really recognize that apart from you, I can do nothing, Jesus. I want to abide in you right now. I want to see you for who you are. I want us to see you for who you are. Holy Spirit, I hope that, I hope, or I, my prayer is that you would help us see you for who you truly are as expressed in your word and help us see ourselves clearly. I pray for sober minds this morning, myself included. And I pray that as a result of exploring um, you revealing yourself through your word, that we would become people who are more and more in awe of your glory, of your goodness, and of who you are, Jesus. So we love you. Holy Spirit, help us. For those of us that are sleepy, wake us up. For those of us that are anticipatory of like encountering you, let it rise. I love you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so really quickly, quick review, just so that you know what happens right before what we're about to read. Uh, if you guys have been journeying with us, Jesus just raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Okay, again, like it can become kind of like a, like a, I don't know, it can become less powerful as we talk about this more and more, but like just consider what resurrection from the dead actually means, what that looks like. Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, okay? And after that, people, people are already kind of like, uh, like coming to grips with like, could this guy Jesus be the Messiah? Then he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead and then more and more people are like, I think this guy's the promised one. I think this is the Messiah, right? And then after that, uh, Lazarus' uh, family, they, they throw this dinner party for Jesus. So they're having dinner together. And if you remember, Lazarus' sister Mary, she anoints Jesus with perfume, right? And it's this scandalous act of her devotion. Like she, she kind of makes... Culturally, she kind of makes a fool of herself, but it's this, like I said, it's this extravagant act of like devotion to Jesus. And she didn't care what the people around her thought. She was way more concerned of like, I just want Jesus to receive what he is worth. And she like pours out this perfume that's worth a ton of money and it causes people to go like, whoa, that's really extravagant. Okay, so that's what happens right before this. People see it, it's this public thing. That's where we're at. Okay, so John chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 12, okay? So the next day, the next day after this dinner, after Mary does her thing, right? The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival, they're coming to Jerusalem for the festival, right? The Passover festival. When the large crowd had come to the festival, heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. Picture this, okay? <clears throat> and they kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Okay, pause for a second. Palm branches. 
So this will be review for you guys, but some of you, you, you don't know this yet, and that's fine. That's why we're doing this. Palm branches, why are they getting palm branches? What's the deal? Um, long story short, these palm branches were like a national symbol for the Jews. So it would be kind of like, it's not the best example, but it'd be kind of like waving an American flag, right? It, it, it's, a, it, it's a national symbol for what? I just want to check in if you're with me. America, right? The United States of America, that's where we're living. Okay, so the American flag is this national symbol for the United States of America. Palm, like the palm branch, the palm leaf, it was a national symbol for the Jews. Okay? Um, they're shouting something. What was it? Hosanna. Okay, if you've been around the church, you've heard this phrase. Do you know what it means? Joel said it. It means save us. So it's not like a, it's not like a title. It's not a title given to Jesus. It's, it means save us. It's, this, it's like this, this deep cry. And it, it kind of implies this idea of rulership along with it. So like, like save us, deliver us, right? <clears throat> and this phrase, it actually occurs all over the Psalms. So you'll see it. It pops up all over the Psalms. Hosanna, save us, this cry, right? So what I want you to see here is already... It's clear that these Jews, they want to make Jesus king. Palm branches, right? Nationalism. The Jews, like, they, they, Hosanna, save us. They, they want to make him king. It kind of echoes, if you were journeying with us, earlier on in John, in John chapter 6, it's this epic story of the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I'm not going to get into it, but he, he miraculously feeds all these people. And at the end of it, they're like, this is, the, this is the prophet. This is the one. And they try to, like, they want to make him king by force, the Bible says. They want to they take him to be their king by force. And he knows this, so what he does is he withdraws. So it's this similar passage of the, these people wanting to take Jesus by force to make him king. So here's what you got to understand as we dive into this. They want Jesus to be king, but they want him to be a specific kind of king. They basically, they want him to be like their national liberator. If you're familiar with uh, kind of ancient history with the Romans and the Jews and stuff, at this time, the Jewish people, they're occupied by Rome, the superpower of the time, right? <clears throat> and Rome kind of ruled with like, an iron fist. So the Jews were pretty oppressed by the Romans. If you've heard of like the phrase tax collector, right? The Romans taxed the snot out of them, like a ton. And they would use their own people to collect those taxes. And those own, the own Jewish people, the tax collectors, they would extort their own people and take more of the taxes for themselves and deliver what the Romans were taxing back to them. It was just a mess. So the Jews are like being oppressed by the Romans and they want to be delivered from that. So they're, they're looking to Jesus to be this king, to actually be this national liberator. Okay, be our king, Jesus. Save us from Rome. Hosanna, save us, deliver us, right? And they're thinking like militarily. Because think about their history. You have King David, right? He was like their greatest king, won all these battles, um, raised up the, uh, Israel as like this, this national state, right? So that's their context. That's what they're thinking. And in regards to Jesus, be our king. Be our national liberator. Um, and then fast forward to we have this moment, this, this triumphal entry. He's coming into the city of Jerusalem. Now, <clears throat> this idea of a triumphal entry, this was super common in the ancient world. This happened all the time. Okay, you would have like these conquering kings that would go off to battle and they would come back riding on their horse, and they would come back with just this news of victory, and the whole city would rejoice, right? Conquering kings, coming back, triumphal entry, something that happened regularly. There's something really important that you need to know about this setting. Okay, you can picture it in your mind. You have all these people. Jesus, there's Hosanna, save us. Be our national liberator. Be our king. Get us out from underneath Roman oppression, right? These people, these same people, they're shouting Hosanna. They're shouting save us. Five days later, they're shouting something else. Do you remember what it is? Yeah, you guys have heard this. 
They're shouting, crucify him, five days later. Why? Because it turns out that he wasn't the king that they wanted him to be. Um, <clears throat> I showed you the picture of my baptism, right? So I, Jesus saved me when I was like a senior in high school. And for me, it wasn't like an overnight process. Like I didn't have this spectacular conversion story where I'm just in like a gathering and the, the truth of the gospel comes alive in my heart. And in that moment, I'm transformed and regenerated heart and like filled with the spirit. And for me, it was kind of a process. God had to break down some unbelief and some untruths in my head. It was, it, it was a process over time. And in addition to like my folks and some other people and some different pastors, there was one man specifically who had a pretty big impact on me coming to Jesus. He was super influential. And this was a guy who was just stoked on Jesus. Like he just consistently, Jesus was on his lips. Like he, he genuinely was stoked on Jesus. And then something happened. He, he experienced, frankly, he experienced, I'm not going to get into details, he experienced deep pain and he experienced betrayal. He experienced suffering. Um, and he got really angry with God. And today, this man who helped lead me to Jesus doesn't want anything to do with God. These Jews, they were stoked on Jesus, man. Hosanna! Save us! But then things changed. They got really angry when he didn't deliver what they wanted. In love, I ask you the question, what happens when God doesn't do things your way? Like, how do you respond to that? You see, these Jews, they misunderstand the kind of king that Jesus was. Like, they missed it. They wanted a king who did things their way, and, and Jesus knows this. So check out what he does. Let's keep reading. Uh, jump into verse 14 in chapter 12. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Daughter Zion, just that's, read like the people of God. Read the Israelites, right? Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, we talked about it a little bit earlier, four gospel accounts, right? Four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This one in John is probably the shortest. The other ones go into more detail. John was written, it was the last one written, okay? The other gospel accounts of this story, remember it shows up in all four, it, there's more detail in the other ones, okay? And it, actually what happens, you can see it and you can read it in the other ones, Jesus, he actually sends two disciples ahead of time to go and get the donkey, so this is a calculated move. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He's giving a command. And his disciples, they go bring him the donkey, right? Now, like I mentioned, I think, earlier before, uh, typically the, the conquering king, right, who's coming back to his city, right, the triumphal entry was common. Typically, a conquering king would, would arrive on what? A war horse, yeah. Just like regal and gallant and like just, yeah, right, he'd, he'd come in on the war horse. But Jesus is different. Jesus chose a donkey. Why? Um, if you remember, it says, right before, it's, uh, look back at verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. What does it say? Just as it was written. Just as it was written. Okay, why? You see, it's quoting, it's going to go in and it's going to quote the whole donkey thing. It's quoting um, Zechariah 9. Verse 9. 
You see, what happened was that God spoke through the prophet Zechariah about the coming Messiah, about the coming Christ, about the coming Savior, right? 500 years earlier. Let's read it really quick. Zechariah uh, chapter 9, verse 9. This is what's quoted in John 12 about the donkey. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Again, the, the people of God, the Israelites. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. And then you expect a war horse. And then it says, humble and riding on a donkey. You remember I told you in the beginning, this is a defining moment in Jesus' life, right? This is a defining moment because it's a moment that tells us a lot about the king that Jesus actually is. And the first thing I want to jump into, I want to talk a little bit about the king that Jesus is and how this passage shows us this. The first thing is he's a king who fulfills prophecy, okay? I don't know if you know this, in the Old Testament, right, pre-Jesus, there's over 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah, and they're specific and they're detailed, all right? Here's the crazy thing. Over 300, Jesus fulfilled all of them. I don't think you understand how wild that is. I'm going to read you a couple quotes. You guys know CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network? Some of you are laughing already. They published an article, and whatever you think, whatever you want about CBN, this is fire, okay? Uh, it says this. I'm going to read this quote. I don't think I sent this to you guys, sorry, but just listen in. The Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Jesus' death, contains over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled through his life, death, and resurrection. Listen to this. Mathematically speaking, the odds of anyone fulfilling this amount of prophecy are staggering. Mathematicians put it this way. Okay, and then they give this stat. It says, one person fulfilling eight. Eight of the prophecies, remember, over 300. One person fulfilling eight prophecies. Guess what the odds are of that happening? One in 100 quadrillion. Okay, so you have million, billion, trillion. Quadrillions after trillion. Okay, that's eight. Here's what's wild about that. Scientists, they believe that there's somewhere, like somewhere around ballpark, 100 billion people that have ever existed. So one in eight, those are your odds. 100 quadrillion. They take it farther. They say one person, and these are, these are mathematicians. This isn't just like CBN coming up with their own stuff. <clears throat> one person fulfilling 48 of the prophecies. <laughs> this is wild. The chances are one in 10 to the 157th power. So just to, that's 157 zeros. <laughs> it's insane. One person fulfilling 300 plus prophecies, only Jesus. It goes on to say, it is the magnificent detail of these prophecies that mark the Bible as the inspired word of God. Only God could foreknow and and accomplish all that was written about the Christ. This historical accuracy and reliability sets the Bible apart from any other book or record. Okay, so already we can see, like, there's no other king like Jesus. He's a a king who fulfills prophecy. Okay, taking this idea even a step further, Jesus is a king who does God's will. That means, first and foremost, he knows what God has said, right? And then he does what the Father tells him. So, put simply, he listens and obeys. If you want to get me fired up, let's talk about listening and obeying. Like, if I could have one thing written on my tombstone, do you know what it would be? He listened and obeyed. Why? I don't want to be known as like a religious person. That might sound weak to some of you. But remember what Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? Obey my commands. Not all of you if you obey my commands. If you love me, what you'll do is you'll obey my commands. The reason it matters to me so much is because I want my life to be a life that's marked by loving Jesus. 
I love him. I love him because he loved me first. Jesus is a king who does God's will. He listens and obeys. The next thing, Jesus is a king who seeks peace. Okay, look back at verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, do not be afraid, that's important, daughter Zion. Look, to, look your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. Okay, we've been talking about the donkey. The donkey's a really big deal here. It's a really big deal. I want to read you a couple of quotes here. The first one from William Barclay, like famous Bible commentator. He says this, quote, with us, he's speaking about kind of modern Western people. With us, the donkey is lowly and despised. But in the Middle East, it was a noble animal. I'm going to, I'm going to butcher some uh, ancient names here. Jer, the judge, had 30 sons who rode on donkeys. That's in Judges chapter 10. Ahithophel rode upon a donkey, 2 Samuel 17. Mephibosheth, the royal prince, the son of Saul, remember King Saul, came to David riding upon a donkey. The point is that a king came riding upon a horse when he was intent on war. He came riding upon a donkey when he was coming in peace. This action of Jesus is a sign that he was not the warrior figure that people dreamed of, but the Prince of Peace. One more quote for you. R.K. Hughes, another Bible commentator, says this quote, he, Jesus, knew exactly what he was doing when he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. He was identifying himself with the long-awaited Messiah. At the same time, he was saying he was not like other world conquerors, past or future. Alexander, Tiberius, Napoleon, etc., etc. The donkey was a royal beast, but it was an animal of peace, a humble animal. Jesus was a new kind of king, but no one understood that. If they had, they wouldn't have cast him aside, which they eventually did. The crowd wanted a king with a sword, end quote. You want to get uncomfortable for a second? Thanks, Dylan. <clears throat> Think about the sin that's represented in this room. Like, start with you. <laughs> Don't start with the person sitting next to you. Like, and not the stuff that's like, like, you know, the, the sin that it's easy to confess, you know? Like, somebody wronged me and I was angry with them in my heart. Like, like the stuff that if the rest of the room knew about, you would flee you'd book it out of the room. Just live there for just a second. The stuff you're really not proud of, like the gross stuff maybe. I'm convinced that probably most of us in the room need to hear something this morning. You need to understand, God comes to you the same way he comes to them in this story. He comes to you riding on a donkey. He comes to you in peace. Why? To make peace with you. He doesn't come riding on a war horse. He comes to you on a donkey as a peace offering. Jesus is a king who seeks peace with who? With people who behave like enemies and who reject him and who do things their way, who reject his kingship. Hear me say this, room full of sinners just like me. You need to know Jesus comes to you in your state and in my state in the very same way. Let that bring you joy. He's not coming on a war horse to you today. He's coming to you on a donkey. He's a king who seeks peace. Let's keep going. The next one. Jesus is a king who is wise. <clears throat> now, uh, remember, these people, they wanted Jesus to be something that he wasn't, right? They wanted him to be a king that he was not. You need to hear this. Jesus cares about your wants. Okay, some people have this twisted view of God, like he's just waiting to punish people, and like, that's not his gig. How do we know that? Look at the life of Jesus. That's why we're going through this series. But 
He cares about your wants. But do you know what he cares about even more than your wants? Your needs. He cares about your needs. Um, Many of you parents will relate to this. My children, you can judge me if you want. My children, if they had their way, they would eat dessert for every single meal. Like straight up, they've even asked, hey, can we have dessert? Hey, can we have dessert? Now, here's the thing. I care about them. I I want to give them things that they enjoy, things that will bring them, like that aren't going to kill them, okay? I don't want to like give them too much sugar, but I want them to experience things that taste good like that's fine to a degree, like moderation, right? But listen, I care way more about their needs than I do their wants. That's why I don't let them have dessert for every single meal. Now, here's the thing too. Like my kids they're immature, that they lack wisdom, (laughs) okay? They lack wisdom. They have a hard time distinguishing between their wants and their needs. They come to conclusions all the time. I need to have the sugar. I need it. Like, I need dessert, dad. Like, why would you do this to me? Why are you holding, do you even love me, dad? Like, this is the, the emotions that they're genuinely feeling. Okay, but you guys, you know, they're young, they're, they're immature, they, they lack an understanding of to be able to distinguish between what they want and what they need. But listen, that's why God made me their daddy. To help them, like to make sure they actually have what they need and not that they just live a life oriented around them trying to get what they want. That's gonna destroy them. Are you with me on this? Jesus, he looks at these people whom he loves and they want a king to rescue them from Roman oppression. That's what they want. But there's something far greater, far more dangerous that they need to be rescued from. What is it? Sin, Satan, and death. Listen to me, guys. God cares about your wants. He does. But he cares infinitely more about your needs. He came to rescue them. Like, because that's what they needed. And that's what he's doing here. To free them from living in a different kingdom. Jesus is a wise king. He cares about your wants, but he cares about your needs more. Uh, let's go, keep going. Verse 16. We're getting close here, guys. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Okay, really quickly. Um, It says that they didn't understand what was happening here until after he was glorified. Do you know what it's talking about when it uses the word glorified here with Jesus? What it's referencing? It's referencing the cross. The pinnacle of Jesus' life. The pinnacle of his ministry. When he was glorified, It's talking about the cross here, okay? So listen, not only is Jesus a king who fulfills prophecy, right? Who does what God says. Not only is he a king who seeks peace. Remember, he rides on the donkey. Not only is he a king who wisely prioritizes meeting the needs of those he loves, but this is a king who uses that authority to lay down his own life. He's a different king. Okay, listen, Think about it. He's going to Jerusalem, right? Triumphal entry. He's going to Jerusalem. And he knows that the chief priests there, the religious leaders, they've been plotting to kill him. He's like walking into the lion's den. Now, typically, this triumphal entry is common, right? Typically, they were associated with with victory. A conquering king celebrating a battle being won, right? They're associated with victory. But Jesus, his triumphal entry is him heading to an execution. Like, what's triumphal about being murdered? Guys, remember, Jesus is a wise king, right? He's wise. He knows he's heading towards his execution as the substitution, as the sacrificial lamb in place of, of the people that he loves. He knows that his death on the cross 
and this resurrection three days later is gonna be the victory over what? Over your sin. Over Satan's grip on your life. Over death having a hold on your life. He knows he's victorious over it. And it's not for him. For those whom Jesus is king, they share in that victory. So Jesus, he's the only king who uses his authority to lay down his life for those that he loves. And and the last thing here that I want to focus on, Jesus is a king who reveals truth. Look back at verse 16. It says this, his disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So the disciples didn't understand until after what? The cross, thank you, yes. They didn't understand until after the cross, right? Jesus is a king who reveals truth. The disciples didn't understand and then because of the action of Jesus, post that, they did understand. Something was revealed to them in that process. Who did the revealing? Jesus. What was revealed to them was truth. Namely, first and foremost, the truth about God. They're, 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 they're seeing things, that he's a king, that, that, that there's, there's no other higher authority than him. He's God in the flesh, king of the universe. He's revealing this to them, okay? How? Through the cross. So that, that he's revealing the truth about God, that he's a king, there's no higher authority He's a king who, what, fulfills prophecy. We've been going through this. He's a king who does what he says he's gonna do. Fulfilling prophecy is God coming through on his promises. Okay, some of you guys are, you're living an anxious life and you don't need to. You know, I don't know what the remedy is. Like, first and foremost, know what the promises of God are and then be filled with faith and belief that he's actually gonna keep his promises, that he is a God, he's a king who fulfills prophecy. He does what he says he's going to do 100% of the time. Not only is he a king who fulfills prophecy, he's revealing this truth about that he's a king who seeks peace with you, like despite you sinning against him. It's radical. It's the best news, man. Not only that, he's a king, the truth that he's a, he's a wise king. He prioritizes the needs of the people he loves even over their wants. He cares about the wants, but he prioritizes the needs. It's Jesus is a king who reveals the truth about God and the truth about mankind. That includes me and you. That our sin is so great that Jesus, God in the flesh, had to die. But we are so loved that he was willing and glad to do it. Jesus is a king who reveals the truth about God and the truth about you and I. All right, let's wrap up this passage. Verse 17. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. So picture these converging crowds, the crowd awaiting him at Jerusalem and the crowd that's been rolling and traveling with him since the resurrection of his friend. This is colliding here, right? This, verse 18, this is also why the crowd met him, the other crowd, because they had heard that he had done this sign. Verse 19, then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. These are the religious leaders. They're bitter because their followers are now following somebody else. So, Think about the characters in this story. You have the religious leaders. Let's start with them, right? They see Jesus as what? They see him as a threat. They see him as a threat. A threat to what? Them being in control. And then you have the crowd, right? And this crowd, remember, they reject Jesus as king when he doesn't deliver what they want. And then you have the disciples. And these disciples who, in the light of the cross, Jesus being glorified, in light of the cross, they actually embraced Jesus as the king that he actually was. 
Maybe you can identify with some of the characters in this story. I know I can. And there's one more character, Jesus, right? Jesus, who is living out a defining moment in his life. Remember, this is the Apostle John writing this down, his eyewitness account, right, of the day that Jesus rode into town on a donkey. The day that Jesus revealed the kind of king that he was, who's coming with a peace offering to people who've rejected him and are behaving like his enemies. Now, you have to understand something here, though. And this is heavy. Brace yourself. The Bible talks about and teaches, really, that there's a time limit on this peace offering. This peace offering has an expiration date. In Revelation chapter 19, the same apostle John who wrote this, he writes about Jesus' second coming, right? A second triumphal entry. But next time, Jesus doesn't come riding on the donkey. He comes riding on the war horse. Let me read it to you. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Listen in. This is, again, same apostle John writing. Then I saw heaven opened, and there it is, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. Verse 15, a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, Jesus' first trip to earth was to make peace with the sinner. It's the glorious news of the gospel. By being their substitute, by, by living the perfect life in your place that I couldn't, that you couldn't, that no one else could, and dying the death that they deserve in their place because that's the kind of king that he is. King Jesus' second trip to earth will be different. It will be a trip of judgment and punishment. Why? Why? for those who reject his offer to be their king. Those who reject his kingship. The people in this story, they rejected Jesus as king. Why? Because he wasn't the king that they wanted. And the real reason is because they didn't see their need. They were so wrapped up in their wants. They lacked wisdom. They weren't aware of their truest need. So you have both religious and rebellious people here. Okay? Both religious and rebellious people, what they do is they dismiss their sin. They dismiss their sin. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to address it. They want to pretend like it's not there or it's not a big deal. They dismiss their sin and therefore they dismiss their need for God's grace. And the Bible's clear. It's by grace you're saved through faith. Not of your works, but it's a gift. Guys, Jesus didn't come for the healthy, man. He says he came for the sick. He came for those in need of saving So here's my point, my big point today. Jesus is the king that you and I need desperately. And listen to me, when you see Jesus as the king that you need, he will become the only king that you want. 
Will you stand with me if you're able? I want to close with this. I'll call the band up. Um, Jesus is the king that you need. So I've been like, for whatever reason, I feel like God's been highlighting Switzerland to me quite a bit. And that might sound really like silly to some of you guys, but uh, my grandfather is from Switzerland. Uh, My mother lived in Switzerland when she was a teenager. So she has dual citizenship. I'm eligible for dual citizenship because my mom has it, right? So like I have Swiss in my blood. So it's not totally, you know, out of left field. But God has been like highlighting Switzerland to me recently. And if you know anything about Switzerland, they're kind of known for one thing. Aside from being a beautiful country, just like the Alps and all that, they're known for kind of one thing. Do you know what it is? Chocolate. (laughs) Chocolate. Yeah. One big thing. You could say peace, yeah. Neutrality. They're they're known for peace because they've been neutral. They're known for neutrality, man. Um, There's been all these major wars they haven't picked a side. They've maintained their neutrality. Um, The Bible has another word for neutrality. It's called lukewarm. It's basically this idea of like, yeah, like I'm cool with Jesus being king of like some things. Yeah, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is cool. Like he's kind of this accessory in my life. I acknowledge that he's the God of the universe, but like he's not the, he's the king of some stuff. He's not the king of this though for me. And it looks different for different people. He's not the king of blank. There's a, there's a, there's a lack of picking sides here. There's a, there's a neutrality. There's a lukewarmness. It's gray. Remember, remember what Jesus said, like, if you love me, you will obey my commands. It's, it's a cause and effect. If this, then that. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Listen, that's not like a religious statement. It's not a matter of like, hey, let's be these religious people who like do these good things. No, it's, an, it's a matter of love. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Lukewarmness is not love. I talked about Revelation earlier. <laughs> Revelation chapter three talks about this idea of, of lukewarmness. Do you know what it says? Jesus uses crazy language. He says, I'm going to spit the lukewarm out of my mouth. The, um, the CSB doesn't say spit, it says vomit. So I'm going to vomit the lukewarm out of my mouth. Why do I say this to you? Some of you are mad at me right now, and that's okay. Heavy stuff. Jesus is holy, man. He's God, He's the King. But what's the truth about the kind of King that He is, my friends? Listen to me, life is made up of defining moments. This is one of them in Jesus' life. I showed you some of mine. Think about what they are for you. What are some of the defining moments in your life? When you look back on your life, it will be looking back on the defining moments primarily. What if 2020 was like a defining year in your life? We just started this new decade. What if 2020 was a defining year in your life? Like if if 100 years from now, somebody wrote a biography about you and it was important. People needed to hear about you. They needed, there was things that they could learn from your life that would benefit them. So think about this. 100 years from now, someone's writing a biography about you. What if 2020 was a defining year in your life? What if it was the year that you banished every ounce of lukewarmness out of your life? Gone. 
What if it was the year that you like full on picked a side? There's no neutrality. Forgive him if you're Swiss. There's no spiritual like Swissness. <laughs> what if 2020 was the year for you when you were all in on Jesus being your king? Every area, every area handed over to him to be the Lord. Here's my question. What would happen? What would happen? 2020 is this defining year of your life, this defining moment for you where Jesus is king over everything. What would happen? You know what would happen? His kingdom would come. His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, in you as it is in heaven. That's an invasion from the conquering king who has an agenda. And he comes in peace. A peace offering with his very own blood for you. My friend, Jesus is the king that you need and he's also the king who wants you. Let me pray for us, huh? Holy Spirit, would you lead us right now? I need you. begin to minister Holy Spirit I know you already are but like we just highlight you right now we exalt you we're here because of you what do you want to do Lord This picture of like build a bear. <laughs> you guys know the, the teddy bear thing where you build your own bear? And I feel like the Spirit's like saying to some of us that we're approaching God as though He's this build a bear that we get to build. And we miss out on living a life that's being built by Him into His likeness when we try to build Him into ours. And there's no joy in that. We miss out on his kingdom. Not just like right now, but for eternity if we live our life that way, if we make those choices. So Holy Spirit, I thank you for your invitation, your gracious, loving invitation to every single one of us to see things, to see reality, that you really are the king that we desperately need. And as we see that more and more, that's my prayer, Holy Spirit, that you'd help every single one of us see you, Jesus, as the king that we desperately need. And as that happens, you alone will be the king that we want. You're the only king who uses your authority to lay down your life for those who you, who you love. You're the only king who follows through on your word every time, who keeps his promises. You're the wise king that cares way more about our needs than you do our wants, although you do care about our wants. And you're the God who rides in on a donkey, the most glorious king who humbles himself, who has every right to show up on the war horse and destroy his enemies who reject him, cosmic treason of sin. But you show up on a donkey with a peace offering. You're a loving king. So would you help us, Holy Spirit, would you help us believe the truth right now? I pray for every person in this room who's feeling condemned that they would know that's not the spirit of God. The spirit of God convicts to bring freedom from the kingdom of darkness and an invitation into the kingdom of light where Jesus sits on the throne. And he's a king who embraces us with what? With grace. He's a king who says, hey, just receive my body and my blood. I poured it out for you already. Stop beating yourself up and receive forgiveness. It's available to you. So Holy Spirit, I pray that every person in this room would receive your love. They would receive your grace. They would receive your forgiveness and it would empower them to live in your kingdom right now and for eternity. And the result of that, the fruit of that would be joy. It would be love. It would be peace. 
self-control. It's like you're highlighting self-control this morning. You want to gift that to us. You want to empower us to be men and women of self-control. How? By receiving your grace, by understanding that we're needy. You're the king that we need. I pray that this would be, I pray 2020 would be a year where we worship you more passionately than we ever have, more intimately than we ever have in every single area of our life. In this room, absolutely, but outside of this room as well. I love you, Jesus. I praise you. Minister to us, Holy Spirit. Amen.